Junkies Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, there's only one movie we're gonna talk about. Ghostbusters 2016. Let's get started. Hey! Don't move! You gotta, uh... No, I'm tired. No, no, Listen. I'm just gonna go ahead and take off. How about that? I, I don't really think that's a good idea. No, gonna take off. Don't upset the ghost. Really? So yeah, in this week's episode, there's only going to be one movie to talk about. I think Batman v Superman was the closest thing we had to this because that weekend there was just Batman v Superman and I think uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. But yeah, this is a pretty light week. Well, the only other thing to come out around me was The Infiltrator, that biopic about the FBI agent who helped bring down Pablo Escobar, starring Brian Cranston. But, like, it was only playing in two theaters around me, and I'm not gonna... <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to you guys. I'm kind of bogged down in all kinds of behind-the-scenes moving issues and whatnot, and there's, there's a lot of plates being spun behind the scenes here at Popcorn Junkie Studios, so to speak. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, the main thing that came out this past weekend was Ghostbusters 2016. And after all of the negative hype, I guess, anti-hype, whatever you want to call it, all of the all of the think pieces and all of the words thrown out about the nature of Hollywood remakes and giving female characters to a formerly male-centric cast. How was the final product? Eh. It was, it was okay. I mean, was, I mean, you, that's the thing. This got, like, radioactive levels of hype out of just being four funny women doing Ghostbusters. And what we finally got was four funny women doing Ghostbusters. And that's it. Like, it was, it, it was like all this pomp and circumstance about one side saying, oh, it's, it's you know, great to see women in this, you know, protagonist, you know, female-centric cast that's not about, you know, romance and it's not a male-centric movie. It's all about women, and then the other side saying, why does everything guts to be about the women's, and it's, it was, it was all nonsense. It was all people trying to make noises and be heard without actually saying anything. It was a sound and fury signifying nothing, as it were. I honestly don't know the context of that quote, so I probably shouldn't be saying it. Anyway, the movie, Ghostbusters, 2016, there was some good stuff. There's plenty of good stuff in there. So, basically, all you really need to know is it's a lot of the Ghostbusters movies, mainly that, you know, there's a lot of elements trying to allude to the first one, um... Plus elements of like the real Ghostbusters cartoon, and it's and the parts that aren't trying to emulate Ghostbusters are really you know genuinely funny stuff featuring the four main wit actresses, and their chemistry together is solid because I'm guessing well Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones I think worked together on SNL. Kristen Wiig was already off SNL by that point, but you could tell the ladies had chemistry together. And the main two that I've seen people mentioning were Kate McKinnon and uh, Melissa McCarthy. Those are the two who people really got the most out of. And they are solid together. Kate McKinnon especially shines. Because Melissa McCarthy is very light. It's not like when she tried to do um, Tammy or uh, Identity Thief. Or, you know, her big body, broad humor style. Like when, you know, it's the big girl falling down. Whoopsie daisy. It's none of that. Like the slapstick stuff is very lighthearted. It's never at uh, Melissa McCarthy's expense. Uh, 
and she and Kate McKinnon have great chemistry, and Kate McKinnon is just all around, like, she's this, I've heard her described as, like, this weird amalgamation of the, of an Egon with, like, Ed from Cowboy Bebop, and, like, and, like, it's, it's, it's this weird, quirky, like, you could tell this person is probably mentally unstable and shouldn't be dealing with radioactive materials, and yet here we are. You know, that sort of thing. And she has a lot of fun with it. I really dug Leslie Jones, I think. I mean, because that's the thing. Leslie Jones is essentially being Leslie Jones. So she's not essentially playing a character. It's just the type of humor Leslie Jones is known for. At the same time, that's, you know, still funny. Like, Leslie Jones is one of the saving graces of modern-day SNL. And I really dug her. And Melissa McCarthy was solid. She owned very down, you know, a lot of the big body humor that she's normally known for is played down and she's more down to earth and it's a lot more, you know, uh, word play and that sort of stuff. It's not so much slapstick and broad humor. Like, you know, they're not trying to just throw everything at the wall to try and make people laugh. And the, and the slapstick is very you know, it's much better played than in so much of her other works. Like, the only one I that really never stood out was Kristen Wiig. Kristen Wiig was very... Like, she was mousy, and... There wasn't else really to her character. Like, she's the one who's coming back to ghostbusting, as it were, to the paranormal, after trying to be a a, you know, legitimate, quote-unquote, scientist. And... But it feels like there isn't a whole lot to her. Like, after that initial establishment of her character, it becomes more about the team, and especially Kate McKinnon and Melissa McCarthy and Leslie Jones. And Kristen Wake gets kind of forgotten in the shuffle because there isn't a whole lot to her character. And I think... Either her stuff may have been cut out, or they tried to make her so much the straight woman in, of the group that she became almost just, like, invisible, like, unnecessary almost. Because that's the thing, is... Melissa McCarthy is solid. Kate McKinnon, you couldn't do this without. I think Leslie Dog... Les Dog is, is uh, her Twitter handle. Uh, Leslie Jones is a phenomenal addition, but Kristen Wiig was the one that kind of... Just was like, okay, hey. You know, it's like um that bit on Arrested Development where they talk about Mae Whitman's character. Her? Who? Yeah. Oh, you. You know, where it's like they forget that that person's even there. And that's kind of Kristen Wiig in this movie. She's for very forgettable. Like, the memorable stuff goes to Kate McKinnon, Melissa McCarthy, Leslie Jones, and some Chris Hemsworth. And that's about it. Um... Stories, essentially, you know, the original Ghostbusters, you know, it's it's very much to the template. Only this time it centers more on establishing a new Ghostbusters. Um, like, there's, that's the weird thing, is there's a lot of references to the old Ghostbusters, but they're trying to establish that this is a new universe that didn't have the original Ghostbusters. Or something, that's... I'll get into the marketing and how it, that completely screwed this movie over so badly. But, yeah, it's about establishing the Ghostbusters as an organization, then getting the four core members together with the secretary, you know, everything gender-swapped. And, you know, there's like one big ghost fighting scene, and then it's the big baddie, you know, where it, I feel like that original Ghostbusters was allowed to establish more of the villain, the, the Zool character beforehand. But here, well, I guess you, they do establish the villain well enough here, but it's it's not a paranormal villain. It's more of a, you know, a human villain who is tapping into the paranormal. But yeah, it's, it's okay. Like, I would put it on par with Ghostbusters 2. Like, Ghostbusters 2 is, no, is a lot kitschier than the first Ghostbusters, it's a lot kid-friendlier, and that's what this is. This is better for families and for people of the family mindset than it is for straight, you know, like... Because, I mean, that original Ghostbusters, 
had more of that original SNL edge that Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray brought to it. And then by the second time, the studio wanted something... I'm guessing the studio wanted something cleaner, something more kid-friendly, so they toned it down. And that's what this is. This is a... This is a... Like, there's not as much... Like... Because, I mean, there was that first Ghostbusters where there's a lot of that sex appeal going off with Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver. And... Ah, like, that, like that first movie was trying to be way, way you know, was at, was geared more towards adults than it was for kids. And that second movie was the one geared more towards for, towards kids, as was the cartoon. And, yeah, that's what, this movie's more continuing that for the kids' style. So this is more like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles remake than a remake of that original Ghostbusters. But... I dug it. Like, I'm not going to say I hated it, because I didn't. I didn't hate it. But I don't think it was nowhere near worth all of the people blowing their minds over how dare they remake Ghostbusters. When in the next month, we're going to get a remake of Ben freaking Her. Ben-Hur was one of the defining movies for generations. And they're going to try and remake that. And people are more worried about freaking Ghostbusters. See, that? I guess that's the whole thing. Hollywood's always... They just remade Point Break. And nobody even paid attention... And yet somehow Ghostbusters is the one that everybody plants their flag in. This is the... This is the... The line must be drawn here! This far, no farther! And... I didn't even get the idea that... But they're making an about women! And... So... So, so what? Because the new one's gonna be about women? That, that somehow, like... Through some sort of mathematical property that cancels out the goodness of the original like i i don't get it like i i are they they're mad because they're crowbarring women and because that's the whole thing it's not like this was unprecedented like they tore it away from the creators and this is all studio mandated dan Aykroyd, as executive producer co-writer has been a major Motions behind getting this Ghostbusters movie made, and he was just fine with it. You know, he was he was trying to go the original route, and then Paul Feig said, "Hey, how about we switch it up, make it about women?" Dan Aykroyd signed off on it. A bunch of the other cast members were okay with it. It's because that's my thing. Is it doesn't matter who the star is. It doesn't matter what the you know what what the thing is. Is it of good quality? That's what I'm interested in. Where is the quality in the work? And there is quality in a lot of this work. Some in more, some more than others. Like, I feel like a couple more... Once again, a couple more months rendering couldn't have hurt. I feel like studios are really rushing the rendering processes on a bunch of these movies and they come out looking like crap. But that's just me. As far as the Ghostbusters are chicks now, that doesn't mean the, the Ghostbusters have been chicks all the time. How many Ghostbusters fans are chicks now? Like they never chicks never needed Ghostbusters to be chicks before, but it's nice to see that hey, we got all kinds of Ghostbusters across all kinds of things. So, I mean, that was the whole point of that. There was, like, that second animated series where there was the chick Ghostbuster and, like, the jock Ghostbuster. And there was, like, it was all very 90s and hip and with it. Like, the one person was in the wheelchair. It was, like, all... It was, like, basically marking down all the different areas of diversity to make sure that every, you know, I was dotted and T was crossed so that nobody got upset that nope, somebody wasn't being represented in the main cast. But it still worked because those characters were still well written. So that's my point is, 
Oh, they're chicks now. So what? Is it a good movie or is it not? That, you know, them being chicks doesn't make it a bad movie. You know, and it's... It, I, I get that it goes into the... That this whole mentality that somehow because the mainstream uh, pop culture sort of zeitgeist has been more about inclusion and telling other people's stories that there's this contingent of people who don't like that and like things the way they were. Despite the fact that what, the way they were wasn't perfect. Ghostbusters isn't a... Is it like the best movie ever? Ghostbusters has its own flaws. And Ghostbusters probably doesn't hold up to a lot of people. So try it. You know, yeah, try it. And it's not, I mean, because that's the whole thing. If they're, they're, they were so pissed they started posting like all kinds of the most hateful, misogynist, racist sort of tweets at Leslie Jones to the point where she left Twitter. Yet nobody's bugging Dan Aykroyd whose fault it is that this thing happened. Dan Aykroyd was the, is the driving force behind this Ghostbusters movie. It was partly his creation. He was the driving force behind this franchise. He's been wanting this to happen for decades. He finally got it to happen, yet everybody's giving Leslie Jones shit and Melissa McCarthy shit. Nobody, ain't nobody talking to Dan Aykroyd, the guy who's behind it all. That's my whole thing, is if you're pissed about what happened to your... What happened to my Ghostbusters? Talk to the guy who made it, because he signed off on it. Don't put it on the new cast for the problems you have with the guy behind the scenes. That's my whole thing. I could probably go on forever with this just backwards notion that that people had about this movie. And ultimately, like, people were blown... Like, there's people who are, like, over-praising the movie to compensate for the over... Like, this just clamp down on... Oh, bird, bird, this new Ghostbusters isn't any good. I like my old Ghostbusters. You know, it's like the kid throwing a temper tantrum because he couldn't get in the ice... Because he couldn't get the, the Ghostbusters he wanted... I wanted my Ghostbusters. I don't want a bunch of these girl Ghostbusters with their cooties. I don't care. Grow up. Grow up. Jeez. But yeah, and then there's this contingent of people who are like, Oh my god, this is the best thing that was ever... People. It's... It's... It's nothing. It's a film. It's decent. There's good parts... There's bad parts. Some parts are good. Some parts kind of detract away from the goodness. Me personally, there was like this little five second thing of a 2D animation that I liked towards the end. Like, I really dug that. It's like, oh, that's cute. So, I mean, there's that, that the villain is probably not as developed as it could be. You know, like, like the way that Zool sort of became a part of Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis in that first movie was really helped play up like, oh my God, what's going to happen here? It's not as well developed. And and that kind of goes hand in hand with the kid mentality. Like, we don't want to go explaining all of this. I mean, it's for kids. You know, don't worry about that sort of thing. And, well, sometimes it helps. I mean, sometimes it helps to you know, be, you know, try to be smarter for kids. Just because it's for kids doesn't mean it has to be for stupid people. Because kids are way smarter than we give them credit for. And that's why a lot of great kids entertainment is, isn't afraid to tap, you know, go into that sort of stuff and expose kids to things that they may never have experienced before. And it's some, and it helps to kind of break out of that mold and not play it so safe, but... Yeah, well, what are you going to do? So, yeah, new Ghostbusters. Uh, I would say best parts are Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones, and Chris Hemsworth. The dynamic between the new characters is good. Anytime they try to make it about the Ghostbusters and make it all, 
you know, make it all the references to the old stuff. That's where it kind of doesn't hold up together. It doesn't really coalesce. Like, if they focused more on this new cast than trying to make sure to remember the old stuff, that may have worked better. But overall, it's not bad. It's nowhere near as bad as people were decrying it, but it's nowhere near as good as some people are saying it is. I'd say, man, wait for, like, a matinee. Maybe the dollar theater. Like, you, I'm not telling you to go out and, like, see this prime time ten bucks a ticket. No, just... I. This is one time where I'm saying don't watch the trailers. That doesn't help you one damn bit. And I'll get into that after the break. But see it for yourself. Hold back. Find, like, an early bird showing or a matinee. You can kind of wait until the dollar theater. I would say three, see it in 3D because... It, there is a lot of emphasis on the coming out, like this is almost like 70s level of it's coming right at you from the screen. So I would say see it in 3D if you get the chance. But you don't have to rush out and see it if you don't want, like if you're not feeling it, you may, you know, that may be a re there may be a reason for that. You may not like it, but I, I'd say give it a shot if you get the chance. And then after the break, we're going to talk about how Sony done screwed up. I wasn't able to get out and see that Infiltrator movie, and I just posted last week's episode yesterday, and it is currently 1 a.m. on Wednesday, July the 20th, 2016, I'm just gonna go right into the discussion and talk about how Sony done screwed up. And by that I mean, wow did they botch trying to sell us Ghostbusters. And... Before I go into Sony itself, I do want to talk about how trailers have kind of evolved. Because trailers were something that used to follow a movie showing. That's why they were called trailers. They trailed the movie. Because all the stuff before the movie was newsreels and cartoons and things, and like, things of that nature. And then I think around the 70s is when they decided to switch it up and take get rid of the cartoons and newsreels and make it more about the trailers because people probably weren't sticking around for the trailers after them they're just they just saw a whole movie they don't want to stick around to see what's coming up next for the most part so the movie trailers then became the previews and not the trailers anyway beforehand they were there was a, like <laughs> there was a legitimate private organization that cut every single trailer for movies as they came out. And it had to be sanctioned by this organization called the National Screen Service. And that became like the go-to authority on movie trailers for the longest time until you get to guys in the 60s and 70s like Kubrick and probably like Spielberg who were like, I'm cutting my own trailer, forget these people. And eventually the National Screen Service fell out of favor and just became another trailer, trailer house that cut trailers for movies. But yeah, there was that whole period where you got like really interesting and experimental trailers, like that original Alien trailer or the Jaws trailer where it's, where it's not. Because it used to be movies from the 50s and 60s were like a couple scenes from, a couple shots from the movie. Here's some memorable lines. Here's some things. And then all text explaining thrills. Come see the thing. And it's... If you've seen any old-school movie trailers, you know exactly the kind of tropes I'm talking about. And if not, Google a couple of them because they're hilariously bad. But that's how they wanted to market movies back then. And eventually became more about almost like little mini-movies. And then eventually we got to the point of like guys like Don LaFontaine 
where it's like, in a world where things are happening. And blah, 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 Until that became, you know, it was basically like the vocal equivalent of the big screen text. And then eventually that became such a joke that we've gone back to what kind of Kubrick and Spielberg were pioneering with the idea of little mini movies to try and sell the try to sell the whole thing. And unfortunately, we're at the point now where studios don't let cuz I mean, it used to be the studio itself cutting the trailer, usually the director himself cutting the trailer from like dailies. And now they farm that out to trailer houses. They they farm that out to little studios around Hollywood that cut the trailer for them. And that's where you get into all kinds of problems like spoiling Terminator Genesis by giving away the twist about John Connor and that's where you get stuff that all the time stuff that happens all the time in comedies and animated movies where they'll be, you know they'll use some footage that never gets in the final cut because it's all from like dailies and stuff and then the final cut just removes that plot point altogether or something and then nobody and then it's like wait what happened to the then something from the trailer that sold you on seeing the movie never shows up. That that's that's what happens when you get dailies farmed to you by studio saying give us something, and then the final and then somebody completely different cutting the final movie. So there's two different people working on completely different projects, and that's how you get crap like that. Like these people farm making the trailers don't understand what the directors are trying to do with what the final cut of the movie is going to look like. They're, do, they're, they're being paid to sell a movie based on the footage they get. And then that's where you get like misleading claims where somebody shows up for like five, like, like the over, like, oh, like how many times have you seen a movie where a celebrity shows up and it's like, they're making sure to let you know, oh, this celebrity is in this movie and then they're only in it for five minutes. And yet they're like the biggest part of the whole marketing campaign. And they're in all the trailers. And and it's... Oh, God, what was the one thing? There was something recently that did that to me. Where it was a celebrity that came in for like one scene of the entire movie. And then is then he's in... Oh, you know what it was? It was freaking X-Men Apocalypse. That was the one that was like... Oh, look at Storm, look at Psylocke, look at Jubilee. And then they're never, they're hardly in the movie itself. And that's where you get these sort of misleading claims of like, look who's in this movie. And then you watch the movie and they're hardly in it. So, I mean, that's, that's a problem across the board in Hollywood. And it happens when you farm out these things instead of letting the direct, instead of letting the people who are actually making the movie cut the damn trailer. It isn't to say that these trailer houses are all awful. I mean, I'm sure you can get a couple that know exactly what they're doing and know how to cut a great trailer. Like, whoever's cutting the Suicide Squad trailers is doing a damn good job. So I can't, I can't, you know, knock all trailer houses bad because if somebody's doing a good job, they're doing a good job. But when somebody screws up, then yeah, there's a problem. And Sony has had a history of screwing up. So let's just talk about Ghostbusters. How did they market Ghostbusters to us? They marketed to us the fact that it's Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig. And they made sure to throw in all of the bawdiest, broadest humor jokes that they could get. And, you know, all of the big, you know, all of the big stuff to try and be like, oh, hey, it's a wacky, crazy comedy. And ultimately, it's a character, it's a character driven comedy piece. It's not about the wacky craziness of the, oh, look at the, you know, it's not big, it's not a cart, it's not all a, a cartoon. And those trailers, especially that first teaser, made sure to emphasize the fact that this is a freaking cartoon. And none of that helped the movie because it made it look like a joke. Like the movie itself was a terrible, terrible joke against people who actually liked the Ghostbusters franchise. And I mean, those trailers are undefendable. And the movie itself is fine. Like, if they made it more in line with the movie to give you what exactly what the movie is, then people probably wouldn't have 
been so outraged, but those trailers made sure to sell us on the cartoony wackiness of the... And that's not what we got. So whoever cut those trailers should have their paycheck cut. But to zero. By which I mean they should be fired out of a cannon into the sun. Anyway. So yeah, those trailers were like the weakest jokes in the entire movie. And it made sure to make it look like even a bigger cartoon than the Ghostbusters cartoons. And it turned the movie into the pariah, terrible example of bad remakes in people's minds. Because what ultimately became of the movie, because people don't care about the movie itself, if all they saw in the commercials and the trailers was this terrible, terrible thing. But Sony doesn't care. And that, yeah, Sony had a history of this these terrible, terrible marketing strategies. Amazing Spider-Man. Another one where Sony has completely botched how they sold Spider-Man. From like all of the emphasis on uh, Norman Osborn and the Rhino and all the marketing footage and trying to make it look like this big action blockbuster when it was so such a convoluted, coalesced mass of just garbage. And everything they did with that reboot was awful. Just nowhere near captured what people even like about Spider-Man, except for maybe, like, the tech. The tech is the only thing they had going for that remake. Other than that, like, Andrew Garfield never came up as a high school kid to me. Like, everything they did to try and make the character dark and gritty was just a continuation of emo Spider-Man from Spider-Man 3, which nobody liked. I mean, there's a few people who like it, but they're outliers. By and large... Emo Spider-Man was hated by the Spider-Man fan base. At least the movie fan base. And then, even going back to that original Spider-Man, so some of the things that Sony tried to sell Spider-Man included paying Major League Baseball to put the Spider-Man logo on bases during major games. And I'd never heard of this because I wasn't paying attention to baseball at the time. But people lost their shit when movies were trying to sell ad space on the baseball diamond. People were not happy. And it's not like you sold the movie any better. It's like, how do we get people to go see Spider-Man? Plant the Spider-Man logo on a baseball diamond on the bases. How does that... Like, where is... Where is where is the, I mean, it's out of the box, but why would people go see a movie because they saw Spider-Man's face being stepped on by Sammy Sosa? Like, how does that, how does that push ticket sales? So you see what I'm saying? And then, of course, there's the infamous Spider-Man 1 teaser where it's Spider-Man catches the criminals in the, net, in the web between the two towers, and then before the movie gets released... 9-11 happens. Granted that's not... Granted Sony had no precedent for that. There was there was no reason... You know, there was no reason for them to think, oh, this can't go horribly wrong. That's just a... That's just a happenstance. That is fake intervening and saying, whoops, time to... And that was a whole poster campaign tune of him looking at the Twin Towers and the webbing across the Twin Towers of catching the helicopter, which, of course, never happened in the actual movie. So... I don't know if that would have ended up in the final cut of the movie if, you know, 9-11 never happened, but never forget. Anywho, uh, going further back into Sony's history, there was a time during the 90s where Sony created a fictitious film critic to upsell their movies. So at a time when Sony Pictures was not making good movies and people were panning them, they created a critic named David Manning for a fictitious newspaper to write positive reviews for all of their movies. And eventually Sony got found out on it. It took a couple months, but for a while there, Sony had a fake critic 
you know, gold starring all of their movies. And people were like, that's weird. Who's this David Manning guy? And they started to investigate and they realized, oh, wait, he doesn't exist. So Sony Pictures was so desperate for good press that they made their own. So yeah, I'm gonna trust those guys to sell me Ghostbusters. Granted, those guys are probably gone by the point they tried to sell us Ghostbusters, but that's the mindset we're dealing with this company. And it's not even just, you know, Sony Pictures. I mean, Sony, the company itself, has had all kinds of bad press from their own doing. It's, it's a tragic, they're, Sony, the company is a tragedy of, the, of themselves being hoisted on their own petard, so to speak. There's another quote I probably shouldn't be making out of context without really knowing anything about it. Point is, PSP. Who remembers the PSP ads? Because there are two I'm talking about. One, for fans of older internet back when Ego Raptor used to animate, I love him so much. I hate to be such a dick. But back when Eagle Raptor used to animate, he did a parody of the PSP ads that were out at the time of the squirrels. Do you remember the PSP squirrel ad? Hey, man, what you doing? I'm playing nut. Why don't you come outside? Hey. You, can play, you can play nut outside? PSP, it's a nut you can play outside. <laughs> if that brings back terrible memories, I'm sorry, but that's what happened. That's a paraphrase of what Sony thought they could try and sell to 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 the to the public as like, hey, it's it's a portable game device. And meanwhile, like Nintendo has always been like, hey, it's a Game Boy. Here's a game. Play your games on the go. Look at all the things you can do with your Game Boy. And PSP is like, how do we sell? How do we sell our portable device? Well, first we gotta use squirrels. Because squirrels make everything better. People love cuddly creatures and cute animals. Number two, we can emphasize the fact that you can play it outside. Number three, we gotta make it sound hip and with it. I forget what that's a reference to. I think it's Nostalgia Critter, but I swear that's a reference to something else, but it's like, where it's like, oh, he's down cool with the 90s kids. That was where you got the, it's like, hey man, what you doing? I'm playing nut. And he's like, freaking Chris Tucker squirrel. Damn it. Oh, God, I love, and if you haven't looked it up, uh, it's the Eagle Raptor PSP ad, and it's like, and it's like, it's the, of course, in true Eagle Raptor fashion, he goes completely over the edge where the one sales, where the one executive is like, what, what is this? And the other guys, and, the, and then he eventually goes to the point where it's like, I gotta stab you, I gotta stab you. Oh God, that was stab me. Why are you gonna stab me? And it's, you know, it goes completely like insane. But the fact of the matter is, that PSP campaign was terrible. Whose bright idea was that to, you can play nut outside? What? Oh. <laughs> oh. So yeah, not only did they try to make the squirrels sound hip and with it, they also, later on, when they made the color variant, decided a billboard campaign would sell their product by having an albino chick with like strikingly white hair and a white dress holding a black woman by the throat. Black woman, dark black hair, dark black dress, white woman holding her by the throat saying, white is, white is coming. White's making a comeback. I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, where, what world do you live in where that's okay? I mean, I get that Sony's a Japanese company and they're kind of insulated, 
That's what you have teams for. It's where you run these things by people. You're a multinational corporation. You run these things by people. By all people. That's the problem is they're running these things by yes men who want the monies. It's like, I won't say no because they want the money. You run these things, but that's why I keep hearing references to people saying like, you need a 14 year old. So you can run this by a 14 year old and say, hey, what do you think of this? That's, that's stupid. Okay, scrap it. We're done. Hey, how's this? Wow, you, wow, you realize what this looks like, right? Okay, scrap it. I feel like that's what they, they need. They need like a resident, like regular person on cast to be like, they need like a regular person on the crew to be like, okay, what does this look like? That looks like somebody's trying to start a race war. Okay, scrap it. Try it again. You know, what is this, what is, how does this read to you? That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Okay, scrap it, try it again. But nope. And Sony just, just, just always loves shooting itself in the foot. And you ask gamers, they'll, they can tell you all kinds of crazier stories about the, like the PlayStation Network issues and problems with PlayStation Studio games. And there's all, oh God, I like, I was almost having trouble trying to figure out what stories to tell for this segment because Sony's, it's like Google Sony major screw-ups. Oh, oh, that, oh, that's a lot. That, that, that's a lot, a lot. Like, that's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. But yeah. <laughs> so, Sony, dead, done, goofed. They don't, they, Sony, I mean, Sony is just spiraling down, and Nintendo was alongside them because Nintendo couldn't tap into modern gaming outside of Japan, and somehow, and then and then Pokemon Go, you know, helped gave them like the last breath of fresh air they needed to climb back up the stock market. Meanwhile, Sony's still spiraling in a you know in a ball of fire to their death, and it's like, what do we do? And they just had like like fire 40 people from their marketing team and they had to whole, do a whole new restructure again. <laughs> After like last year they tried to scramble to fix up, fix their screw up from the interview and getting hacked by supposedly North Korea though there, there was never any word of whether it was actual North Koreans or like Chinese mercenary hackers who were doing it but there was, you know, Sony got hacked because they have no idea what they're doing and they had to go through a whole restructuring process. And then just in the last few months, they had to go through another restructuring and get rid of like 40 or 40 to 60 people. Because just poor Sony can't get his act together. Uh, but this episode doesn't want, need to be all about bashing Sony because thankfully I found plenty of other people to bash. Let's talk about, because I was looking up other major screw-ups and trying to market movies, and we got things like a balloon for the last action hero, the bomb that killed Arnold's action career in the 90s. They decided to market that by having a Macy's Day float balloon of Arnold, complete with a dynamite bomb around New York City just after the World Trade Center bombings in 93. So they decided, how do we sell this action movie? How do we sell this action movie? How about a giant inflatable car salesman-esque balloon of Arnold with complete with dynamite bomb and we put it all around New York City where they just had a major bomb scare. Like that's that. These are the levels of like what 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 the what who what what I didn't see whose bright idea that was, but I'm guessing he they fired his ass because that's terrible. And of course they followed that up by saying, okay, this isn't working. How about we paint the side of a NASA shuttle shooting into space with Last Action Hero and Schwarzenegger and. Unfortunately, due to 
issues with I think uh, the weather and finances. Something 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 happened, and the shuttle launch got delayed for two months, which was long enough for the movie to come out and completely fail before the shuttle with Last Action Hero and Schwarzenegger on it actually launched into space. That is incompetence on a whole new level. It just shows that they had no idea what they were doing. It's like, crap. Apparently they couldn't just sell it as a regular Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. They had to go like, oh, how about we put inflatable Arnolds with bombs all around New York City after a bomb scare? Okay, how about we paint it on the side of a shuttle? Shuttle launch delayed. Well, there's millions of dollars we're never getting back. Thanks, Frank. Any more bright ideas you want to sell us on? How about we put those? How about we put U U five seven one on the side of an actual submarine where nobody can see it? Uh, anyway, uh, another fun one. Apparently, for Superman four, the you know, but you know, depending on whether you uh, include Supergirl. The Superman 4 is pr yeah, pretty much the worst Superman movie ever put to film. And for the premiere, Can Pictures decided we're going to include Superman, Christopher Reeves, and Nuclear Man, whoever the hell that guy was, in full costume greeting the guests at the premiere on the red carpet. There's one problem. Christopher Reeves said, hell no. There's no reason for him to sell that piece of crap film in full-on Superman spandex. He's not a freaking carny. He's not one of those assholes on uh, Sunset Boulevard trying to get you to try to sell you pictures with them in their brown Superman costume. Unfortunately, nobody told Nuclear Man that Superman wasn't showing up. So that whole premiere, the guy who plays the guy who plays Nuclear Man, is in full costume, greeting all the stars and like Princess Diana and Charles showed up, but he looked like a jackass that whole night. Oh, <laughs> uh, poor guy, gets stuck selling a crappy movie <laughs> in full costume to dignitaries, heads of state, major film stars and celebrities known the world over. And here he is, dressed up as Nuclear Man. Brill, brill, just brilliant. Like, ah, uh, like that's something. Dressing somebody up in the costume is what you do for kids' parties. You don't do it for film premieres, and you don't do it with the actual cast. You hire people to. The, eh, well, that's why Canon Films is bankrupt now, of course, because they make. <laughs> that's the kind of terrible decision making Canon Films is known for. Uh, another one that came up, this is all, this, most of this is from a Cracked.com article. There's another one that came up with another article. I forget what the website was, but, <clears throat> uh, apparently the, uh, Cameron Crowe movie Singles, which I think is like his first major motion picture, it was some 90s grunge rock scene movie where it's like a bunch of hip, you know, then hipster kids. You know, hipster grunge kids and their romantic travails or something. I never watched singles. That it always seemed like it was. It's it had its head too far up its own ass. Well, because Pearl Jam featured heavily in the movie with the actors with the band members from Pearl Jam as actual characters within the movie, Cameron Crowe decided to hire Pearl Jam to headline an after party. For the premiere. And Eddie Vedder got pissed drunk and trashed the stage and said FMTV. I think live on camera too. So <laughs> that's what that's what you get. I mean, the, the, what did you think? Eddie Vedder was gonna be what is gonna sell out like that? You know, that's you don't like I would have expected something similar with if you tried to do that with Nirvana. Like if like you tried to told Kurt Cobain. Like, okay, we're going to have you play the after party for this movie. And he's, he'd probably do it so we could shout expletives and destroy priceless equipment. <laughs> because screw you. Screw you, you know, you smug piece of crap. 
trying to take advantage of these guys. Uh, I don't feel sorry for him at all. No, your movie stinks and you try to take advantage of this band that's in the movie. And then the lead singer of the band trashes the set and ruins the party. What did you think was going to happen, jerk off? Anyway, here's what I didn't know about. Apparently, following 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Canadian-based restaurant chain Howard Johnson's commissioned a full, like, six-page, maybe 12-page, I'm not sure how many, but multi-page comic book for children to understand why 2001 is a good movie. So somebody made a deal, somebody, whoever owns 2001, made a deal with Howard Johnson's, the Canadian restaurateur, to sell children's comic books that came with the kitty meals to tell the kids why 2001 is a good movie and specifically lie about how well the premiere of the movie went. I under I know that I said kids aren't stupid, but I feel like trying to explain 2001 A Space Odyssey to a child would never end well. Because number one, they wouldn't understand anything you're saying. Number two, they'd probably get bored with you and want to move on to something more interesting. Like lint. Or flashing colors on a TV screen. And jingling keys. Because that's the thing. Kids are smart. You, shouldn't, you don't have to talk down to them. You also shouldn't be trying to explain the intricacies of 2001 of Space Odyssey to them. In comic book form. No less. There's something I think Linkara should cover at some point for his, one of his comic book quickies. The Howard Johnson 2001 The Space Odyssey comic. Uh, and then the last one from the Cracked article was apparently for Gone with the Wind in I think 1939 was the release year. Uh, they had the premiere in Atlanta. Which was completely segregated. So none of the black actors from the film, including the woman who went on to win an honorary Oscar for her portrayal as the Mammy character in the movie. I don't remember her name. I never got into Gone with the Wind. It just never something that interested me. Even when I, like, I watched it, I sat down and watched it on Netflix, and I, can't, I could barely retain anything outside of the usual, like, uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, as God is my witness, you know, all the stuff that holds up. <clears throat> Nothing about the nothing else about the movie outside of the pop culture references really holds up. It's all soap opera, like ham fisted levels of oh wet. I don't know nothing about living now, babies. I mean, it's 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 a soap opera for three hours with a fifteen or twenty minute intermission. It's it's it, it is not you know it's it, it's it was a big blockbuster for the time. And then you sit, wait, and then now you watch it, it's like, wow. Just wow. <laughs> but yeah, none of the black actors were allowed anywhere near, anywhere near, they weren't even allowed to attend the screening. It was a whites-only affair for the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta. Only black people there was a local church choir that was allowed to sing which, oddly enough, included Martin Luther King Jr., whose father was the choir director. So he got to experience racism at an early age with the Gone with the Wind premiere, where it was no blacks allowed. Oh, boy. Although that does put the Sony debacles in retrospect. I mean... You know, depicting a white woman holding a black woman by the throat is terrible. But at least black people are allowed to attend Sony premieres. I'm, I'll move on. I'll, I'll move on. Anyway, this went, this next one went into somebody else's article. I forget who. Um, if you Google uh, bad movie marketing, I guess, worst movie marketing... Uh, there's going to be an article with a list of, like, I think 10 or 15, probably, of the worst movie mistake, mar marketing mistakes. And it's not the cracked one, it's a different one. 
but it's another list, and it has you go through one by one. And that one came up with, apparently, for Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the movie with Jason Segel and Kristen Bell and Mila Kunis, the one that takes place in Hawaii, and features, oh, it opens with uh, Full Frontal from Jason Segel. Uh, apparently their first attempt to market the movie with the posters was telling Sarah Marshall to go to hell, to go to hell. And like, I hate you, Sarah Marshall. My mom hates you, Sarah Marshall. And it's like all this hate directed at Sarah Marshall, except they didn't specify that though there's a movie called Forgetting Sarah Marshall, that this isn't directed to actual Sarah Marshalls. Whoops. That's something you'd think you'd focus on. Next two involve bomb scares. Fun times. No actual bombs going off like with Last Action Hero, where they reference a where they have somebody holding dynamite after an actual bombing. But apparently, for both Mission Impossible Three and the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie, they were they tried to go for the marketing in such a way as to make the public think that there was a bomb scare and that somebody was trying to set off a bomb. The first one was in L.A. for Mission Impossible 3, and they hit, they set up little speakers to newsstands to tell people to go see Mission Impossible 3 and do the whole, this message will self-destruct in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And the wires that they attached to the speakers were visible to the public and it made people think that the newsstands were wired to explode. Brilliant. Just absolutely phenomenal work there, gentlemen. And of course, that doesn't help the Oxygen Hunter Force movie where there were no actual, uh, you know, wires. And it doesn't make people make, you know, there was no actual evidence of a bomb, of bombs being set up. But they just left Ignignot and Ur. The Moonanites in LEDs and in spray paint. And, and you know, all, they left these little... Uh, the Moonanites across all of Boston for the premiere, leading up to the premiere, trying to go for, like, the Blair Witch Project levels of viral marketing. And all they ended up doing was making the city of Boston, including the police who were never told about this, think that there was a bomb threat and that there was a, a, a terrorist group using the Moonanites as a scare tactic to tell people that there's a bomb that's going to go off in Boston. Excellent work there, gentlemen. Excellent work. Great job on actually telling the police what you're doing. That helped. You know, you know that probably would have helped. And then the last one, another movie that was completely debacled by terrible marketing, 2000, I believe, 13s, maybe 12s, John Carter. And that's the thing. I saw John Carter. I was a bit excited about it. And the movie itself is okay. It's very muddled. And apparently, that also goes for its marketing campaign. Because Andrew Stanton, the director, cut that first teaser, which didn't emphasize any of the movie itself, was completely trying to muddle the entire storyline of the movie and ended up just completely screwing the whole thing over. He said it to like this weird lamenting piano score and it's like this is the guy who made wally -E. and like i think he's a major major pixar director and he says i get first cut of the teaser trailer and they're like i don't know andrew it's like nope i'm gonna do it send it out and it was terrible and it did nothing to try and sell people to see the movie it made it look like this weird introspective like dramatic piece that also took place on, like, an alien world. And it was, like, all muddled together and it made it look almost like Cowboys and Aliens, which was another terrible bomb that came, that came out at the same time. Not to mention the fact that they never mentioned that, oh, by the way, the guy who made Wally -E made this movie. So they never said anything about the guys making the movie and how it was a good, you know, it's like, oh, hey, here, the guys who made this made these really good movies, made this movie. 
And yeah, it was just completely, like, garbled together, much like the movie itself. And ultimately, yeah, the, that whole marketing campaign did nothing to try and emphasize the great aspects of, like, here's an amazing director with all these great projects under his belt, and here is his first ever live-action movie, and... Bleh. Whoops. And, and there you go. So there you got, here you got a guy who thinks he can do it, and here's what his vision of the movie is to try and sell it to people. And it just goes to show that artists don't make good salesmen sometimes. There you go. Uh, that about does it for this week. A uh, very, very light week. And the films opening up this week are Star Trek Beyond, Ice Age Closing Course, and the horror movie Lights Out. So it's going to be a whole new, um, whole, it's going to be a whole other full slate next time around. So that means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to Popcorn Junkie, you are most likely listening to us on SoundCloud. The home of Popcorn Junkie is SoundCloud.com. So if you want to find every episode of Popcorn Junkie out there, go to SoundCloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie. And there they all are for your listening pleasure. Or if you want to take the podcast on the go, you can always subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store, go to the podcast section, look up Popcorn Junkie, and there you'll find my orange mug, chomping on popcorn, and the entire SoundCloud feed will be delivered to the iTunes store to be taken for you wherever you may listen to the podcast. And if you want to help to spread the word about the podcast, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review for the podcast on iTunes. And I'll be sure to read those on the next episode. Due to, due to the algorithmic nature of the iTunes store, the best way to help spread the word of the podcast is to leave those five-star ratings and reviews. So, if you want more people to find out about the podcast on iTunes, leave a five-star rating and review. And hey, if you want to help the podcast out financially, subscribe to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, all one word for that one, and you can help support this podcast on a financial basis. And there are all levels of tiers for Patreon subscribers, from $1 a month all the way up to $50 a month, wherever you see fit to help this podcast out and get up on its own two feet. And for supporting the podcast through Patreon, you get all kinds of rewards, from getting shouted out on the podcast, to having your suggestions heard for the podcast, to being a part of the podcast. All of that can be yours if you subscribe to the podcast through Patreon and leave a monthly donation in that little Patreon tip jar. And not to mention that Patreon allows me to have all new goals set up for the podcast. So if enough listeners subscribe to the podcast through Patreon, they can help me get to my first goal starting a second weekly podcast called Make a Better Movie, wherein I go in and I look at the failures of old and talk about how I would have improved them. Movies like, hey, Ghostbusters 2016, where would I have made that a better movie? If you want a preview of that series, listen to episode 3, Making a Better Superman, where I take a look at the Superman character and talk about how I would make that a better movie. Other topics include, but are not limited to, Age of Ultron, Fantastic Four, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Seventh Son, The Last Witch Hunter, and hey, all kinds of movies. If you want me to take a look at a good movie, you can suggest that if you're a certain tier level on Patreon, once we get to the goal of making Mega Better Movie a podcast. But hey, not everybody can help out financially. If you want to help out the podcast, you can spread the word through social media. The social media home of Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. And there you'll find all updates on new episodes as they come out and my thoughts on new releases after I leave the theater. Plus, if you follow Popcorn Junkie on Twitter, at CornJunkiePod, there you can join me for trailer talk. Before each and every showtime, if I'm early enough, I get my thoughts on the trailers leading up to the movies as I see them. So, if you want to hear my thoughts on what new trailers are coming out, which can get monotonous depending on what trailers are being emphasized more than others, but if you want to hear those thoughts, all you have to do is follow at CornJunkiePod on Twitter.com. Plus, you'll get that Facebook feed directly to Twitter.com. So if you want to help spread the word of the Popcorn Junkie, like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie and 
follow the podcast on Twitter at CornDunkyPod. And don't forget to let everybody you know know that you listen to this podcast. And if there's anything else you want to say to me about the podcast, you can always send those thoughts to PopcornJunkiePodcast at gmail.com. Whatever kind of commentary, feedback, criticisms, any kind of thoughts you want to let me know about the podcast, just send those to PopcornJunkiePodcast at gmail.com. And if you want, I can always read your thoughts on the air to the listeners. So, that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And who are you going to call when this podcast is late? The Popcorn Junkie. And who are you going to call when the podcast is up late? Am I right? Uh... The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his art. Via email to porn to porn junkie there's a whole other podcast <laughs> <laughs>